Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. the executive director of Sisters in Crime, and I'm really thrilled to welcome Alexia Gordon to the podcast today. Alexia is the award-winning author of the Gethsemane Brown Mysteries, a paranormal cozy series set in Ireland. She's also a physician, a blogger with the misdemeanors, and since June 2019, host of the Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon, a bi-weekly podcast that features interviews with authors of traditional and cozy mysteries. Her short story, Love's Labor, in the most recent BoucherCon anthology, This Time for Sure, is all about a podcast episode that takes an unexpected turn. We'll need to talk about that. Alexi's most recent novel is Execution in E, which is available wherever books are sold. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, I'm delighted to, to see you and to, to have this conversation. Um, I want to definitely talk about your podcast, which you uh, have been doing for longer than I've been doing this one and, and that journey. But let's talk about your writing journey um, first. And as I always do on these, um, let's talk about when you first said to yourself, I want to write a novel. Hmm. I've been writing Actually, since elementary school, I, I was home a couple of Christmases ago and found stashed in a cabinet a little, uh, was, uh, some class project where we'd ha- made the actual book covers and we actually had to write and illustrate our own stories. And for whatever reason, my parents saved it for half a century. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I've always wanted to be a writer, but I guess I was, I had just moved to Dallas. So that was probably about 2013. Uh, when I decided that I wanted to write a novel for publication. Um, And I had just made a major career change uh, that I transitioned out of full-time clinical primary care and recaptured a lot of time. And that's when I realized, like, I have actually have the time right now to devote to making this, this happen, to write something of publishable quality. You have had very interesting career journeys, um, and you know, I, I, seeing how those segue in will be interesting as well. But um, I can only imagine from knowing you mostly through social, but being lucky enough to have met you a couple times and seen you on panels, that you, once you decide to do this, you you were determined to do it. Like this is is, is what was going to happen. So how did you embrace the journey? Did you take classes? Wait, you know, did you intuitively know, had you been taking workshops, you know, when 2013, when you said, okay, good time, I'm going to write a novel. What, what did that look like? Well, I had been taking lots of uh, workshops and sort of one-off classes and had, I don't know how many dozens of how to write a novel books. Uh, but <laughs> when I was in uh, Dallas, Southern Methodist University at the time had a program. It was a non-degree program, but it was like an MFA except for the degree part. Uh, and it was aimed at working adults. So you, unlike an MFA, you didn't have to quit your job and you know, go to school. Yeah. Low res MFAs weren't as popular then. Uh, but because it was aimed at working adults, the classes were in the evening and you could just take one at a time and work them around your schedule. Uh, but the uh, sort of uh, goal was if you actually took all of the courses in this program called the Writer's Path, by the time you finished it two or three years later, you would have a manuscript that was of uh, at least the quality that you could then pitch to an agent or editor. You know, they didn't promise you'd get published, but they promised that your manuscript would be polished enough that you could show it to somebody in the publishing industry. Uh, so, and you know, Southern Methodist University was right near where I lived, so it was an, an easy uh, trip to get there after work. Uh, to and it it gave me the structure I needed to get the feedback, say, hey, yes, this is a good way to go, or you might want to think about this, or 
yeah. wanted to try that. And it was taught by people who had published novels, like uh, Daniel J. Hale, who actually was past wow. vice president of MWA, Mystery Writers of America, uh, was one of the instructors. So it was taught by people who had actually published novels. So they had experience in the industry. And so they were able to kind of help shepherd you from basic idea to finished manuscript. Wow, that sounds great. And in doing this, you must have met people and sort of built up a, a pod of fellow writers who you were doing the program with. Oddly, I was one of the only mystery writers there. Uh, there were a lot of people working on quality women's fiction and memoir, uh, but Daniel Hale and I were about the only crime fiction uh, folks in the program. <laughs> it, was, it was just interesting. It's like, does anybody want to like murder people? <laughs> It's very stress relieving. So was it always going to be crime fiction for you, Alexia? Was that always the the genre that interested you? Yes, because anytime I think of a story, if I think about it for more than two minutes, a dead body shows up somewhere. So (laughs) why fight it? And um, did this come from reading habits as a as a you know as a kid and as a young adult or or what what drew you to the crime fiction genre? As a kid, about all I read was crime fiction and science fiction and and horror. Stephen King's horror more than science fiction. So, uh, it was a steady diet of uh, crime, horror, and uh, sci-fi fantasy uh, has has turned me into the person that I am today. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a it's a good combination, obviously. So you finished this program, which sounds really great. And at the end, you had a manuscript. Was that the beginning of your series or was, is, you know, tell me about what happened with the manuscript. Yes. That manuscript actually became murder in G major. Uh, it was maybe the second or third meeting of the second or third course in the program. And actually Daniel J. Hale was the instructor and he looked at his watch um, and said, you've got 10 minutes, come up with a story. Uh, and I came up with the idea of a musician stranded in Ireland who has to solve a ghost murder. And I stuck with that idea throughout the program. And uh, when I was finished, by coincidence, so if anyone says that luck isn't involved in publishing, they're maybe not being as honest as they should. I just happened to uh, find out that the DFW Writers Conference was in Dallas, and it was within walking distance. So I walked over, and registration happened to include a couple of pitch sessions, and you could also buy additional sessions a la carte. So I was like, what the heck? I'll just buy that third one, because I knew I had to practice it, because I'd never, I, yeah. I, I know nothing about the actual business side of publishing. Uh, so, I, But I knew I needed to practice. And that third pitch session happened to be with an acquiring editor from who became my publisher and published Murder in G Major. That's awesome. Well, I think, you know, luck is opportunity and hard work meeting. So <laughs> I think if you hadn't been ready, um, you know, you would have blown the pitches. So, um, you know, don't don't discount the work you did. But let's talk more about these classes and how you write. Did, when you were doing this, did they encourage you to plot versus pants or, or what's your writing process like and how did going through a program change that? Or did it? I didn't really have a process. I always tell myself I ought to come up with like a good answer for this question. Um, I should just, I mean, I write fiction, right? So I can just make something up. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> truthfully, I didn't really have a process prior to the program. Uh, when I went through the program, uh, I know I keep mentioning Daniel, but it was really his instruction yeah. that, that did it. It was, uh, we used the, the writer's journey, which is based on the hero's journey. And yes. so it, it set your manuscript up by you know, the um, each of those steps. So it, it was uh, an outline-driven course, I guess. And right now I call myself a, a planter, and I'm one of those kind of in-between. I'll start with a basic outline. What I end up with might not actually look anything like that outline. But by being able to go through each of those different stages of um, the character's journey or the, you know, the character's arc. Um, that way I, I make sure there's no like gaping plot holes. So, um, so I, I did find mm-hmm. that, that very helpful. 
Yeah, and that's a really interesting, the hero's journey, or, you know, the character's journey, uh, using that as a as a way of structuring a story is really interesting because, you know, being called to action and taking the, answering the call and, you know, all those, the mentors and all that really uh, works. I mean, it's a really interesting way of looking at things. There are many ways of looking at things, but I think that that's a really interesting way. Yeah, no, yeah. and I find that a lot of the, the ways, I mean, they, they use different terms, but they kind of all are actually doing the same thing. I mean, they, they all end up being the sort of that three-act structure with a you know a beginning, a middle, and an end, and, and that arc. But they use the different methods, use different terminologies, and I think finding the terms that help make it make sense in your brain is what helps you mm-hmm. use that. So it, mm-hmm. there's there's one's not better than another one. It's just some will resonate with you more than other ones. And the one that really resonates with you, it's like, oh, now I get it. And that will help you get from beginning to end. I think that's such a great thing to say to people who are starting out on their own writing journey is there's no one way to do this. And you can learn the same thing over and over again till it makes sense. It's okay if it doesn't make sense (laughs) at the beginning, (laughs) because you're doing a lot. Writing a book is a big project. It is. With lots of moving parts. Um, (laughs) Do you, and you've written a series of five books. How did that, how, you know, did you enjoy that process of, of characters evolving over time and figuring out new ways for them to move forward? I did. Actually, it was easier by the third book. The, The second book was harder because I felt like people had expectations after the first one and I was like, Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, I was sort of terrified. I'd do something that say, well, that character wouldn't do that. Well, it's my character. So they do whatever I wanted them to. But in my head, it was like, Ooh, I've, I've sort of, you know, this, this is, this is canon now to, you know, borrow a term from, from fan culture. I I can't change it. Uh, Once I got by the third book, I'd kind of gotten over that. So three through five was actually a lot easier because I already had the characters invented. I didn't have to start from complete scratch and make up a character who was going to do something. It's like, okay, I've got these people. I kind of know who they are and what they're about. Now I just have to make up the situation that they get into and and come up with a, with a mystery and a fun new way to kill somebody. And I love that the idea in this 10 minute, you get 10 minutes to come up with a story. Um, Yeah. Idea is a paranormal musician ireland like that mashup do you have any idea where that came from uh, the paranormal part came from the ghost of mrs muir yeah um and the the classical musician part came from where did that come from i had just had an idea from a long time ago about I, I i love to travel if i can't travel in person i like to sort of daydream about travel and i had just thought about you know what if somebody went and got traveled to X place and, and got stuck, what would they do? And I also happen to love pub music. I love Irish pub music. So I was like, what about mm-hmm. Ireland? You know, if she was a musician, maybe she could like, you know, do an, go to an open mic night and win enough money to at least pay for a roof over her head. And that just idea just kind of stayed in my brain. And then when I had that 10 minutes, I'm like, oh crap, I got to come up with something. Well, what if I did that? And why not? add a ghost. And then it just kind of went from there. (laughs) It's great. It's really great. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful premise and a wonderful series. Um, so you took this program and you learned a lot. What do you wish you'd known earlier? Although it sounds like you started and you were learning, but you know what now, well, you know, five published novels in short story writer, podcaster, what do you wish you'd known earlier in your writing journey? Not so much about the writing part, about the business part, because that I was truly clueless about and still kind of clueless about. Um, I don't have, you know, I come from a a medical background. I have zero connections in the publishing industry, knew nothing about publishing except for, you know, I'd probably seen some movie from 1970 something where, you know, all you do, you write the book, you send it to somebody and then they do all the work and you just go around being like the, you know, the author in the tweed jacket. Like, well, that's not true. Um, so I, I didn't know anything about the business aspects. And you, ha- especially in, in this environment, you have to learn 
about the publishing business and treat it like a business. And there weren't a whole lot of classes when I was starting out that actually taught you that. There were a lot of resources actually to help you write the book because frankly, if if you don't have the book written, then the rest of it doesn't matter. I mean, you have to have the manuscript. But there wasn't a lot of follow-on to say, okay, now that you have a manuscript, here's the part that you don't hear a lot about. Here's the part that a lot of people don't want to admit because a lot of people, you know, love that image of the starving artist who just gives stuff away for for free, which is frankly silly. Um, It's not like that at all. If if that's what you're thinking, it's like, it's not. um, But there's, there's this reluctance to just admit that this is a business they need to learn about mm-hmm. some business and marketing and promotion and promotion and treat it the same way you would treat any other job. So I, I wish I had known about that earlier on, not because it would have scared me away. I just would have known, Hey, I need to start preparing for that part of it too. But you pulled it together or learned enough to know how to pitch or to feel comfortable in pitching um, these, you know, this book, which is a, frightening thing. And, and for many listeners, you know, your first pitch sessions in one of the three, you know, you, you hit it out of the park. That doesn't happen to many folks. So you'd been working on the book for a long time and likely been talking about it and been pitching in classes. Um, what was that like? How did you prepare for that? Actually, I didn't know about pitching. Um, and I do not feel comfortable doing it at all. Even even now, I don't feel comfortable doing it. Uh, I think part of why I did it then was because I was clueless. Um, and I looked at this, I, I, mean, I truly wanted this as a practice session. It was like, okay, I'm going to force myself yeah. to just do this for practice. I wasn't expecting anything at all to come out of it. Um, I had done one, they, the, the conference had you know, a, a pitch warm up that you could do and they'd give you some, some feedback on what they thought. And then you went straight into the actual pitches. And I truly went in thinking, you know, I'm not going to get any offers out of this. I'm just going to do this so that I can learn how to do it while the stakes are low and maybe feel slightly less terrified. <laughs> and that's where the luck came in. I just happened to pitch to the person who was looking for a paranormal cozy. So that's where the luck part came in. But I did. I definitely went into it thinking nothing was going to come of this. So since my expectations were low, the stress level was low. Um, but I, I won't actually say that I'm comfortable pitching because it's it's scary. Yeah. Selling yourself, which is what you're doing, is frightening. Um, I know some people are probably, I'm on the introverted end of the spectrum. Um, some people who are on the more extroverted end may find it easier than I do. But I, I still yeah. have a hard time with that, even, even if it's not about books, you know, tooting my own horn is, is hard for me. Uh, so that's, that's something that I, I'm still constantly working on. I think that that many writers are on that introverted, um, spectrum. And it's also that you love your book. I mean, that's when you're trying to sell something that matters to you so much, it's hard. It's really, really challenging, um, to do that. And so I give tremendous credit to anybody who, who does this and, and who, um, masters it. But as you said, I don't know that anyone loves it. There are some who do for sure, but you know, it's a tough one. Um, so it sounds like you got some great writing advice, uh, and, and you likely give advice to what's the best piece of writing advice and what's the worst piece of writing advice you've gotten? The best was probably finish the manuscript. Um, cause yeah. again, cause if, if you don't have a finished manuscript, then you're dead in the water. I mean, got nothing to sell to anybody unless you have it, you know, unless, unless you're Stephen King, maybe doesn't have to <laughs> have it. People will just like, sure, you'll get around to it. Um, but you know, the rest of us have to have an actual product. Um, so finish the manuscript was the best advice that I got, which was, you know, a shorthand way of saying, just sit down and do the work, do the best work that you can do. Mm-hmm. And cause you, you can actually, I would say waste a lot of time studying how to write and not, but using that as sort of a procrastination tool to keep you from actually writing. I mean, at some point you just got to start putting some words on a page Um, and you can keep studying the craft as you go. But if you don't marry that studying up with the actual producing, you're just going to be a sort of a perpetual writing student. 
I think the worst advice that I got, um, it's actually for more than one person. So I'll kind of, it was, it basically boiled down to write the story I want to hear, not the story you want to tell. Uh, you know, there were a couple of uh, folks who probably thought they were honestly being helpful, but their feedback wasn't, you know, along the lines of the pacing's too slow or this character's flat or here's a plot hole. That's that's helpful feedback. Uh, but when you yeah. get feedback like, well, I know you wrote a story about uh, uh, solving the murder of a ghost, but I think you should cut out the ghost and instead of third person, make it first person. And instead of doing this, your character should do that. It's like, well, that's literally not the story I wrote. So yeah. no. <laughs> and there, there's some people who they, they think they're being helpful when they do that, but that's not helpful. I mean, if you, if you don't like the story, just say that's not for you. And I've, I had some folks that I'd pitched to, to would say, Hey, great story. I'm just not into ghosts. That's fine. I and mean, that's good feedback. Like, it's just not for me. But when they say, well, I think you should do it my way instead of your way. And it's not a question of craft. It's just, I want you to tell my story. That's not helpful. That's actually terrible advice. So if somebody is doing that to you, just smile and thank them for their input and then ignore them because that's Tell the story that you want to tell, tell it well, and listen to the people who want to help you tell your story well, but people who want to change your story really aren't doing you any good. It's such a great point. Uh, And something that is hard to learn, especially, you know, when you're starting out, do you think that because you came to writing from a second career that had been so established and and where you, you knew what you were doing, um, as a doctor, do you feel like that gave you confidence to sort of be able to stand your ground and say, yeah, that's, I'm going to ignore that. Or, or is this part of you or is this something, some advice somebody else gave you? Cause a lot of people won't be strong enough to ignore that advice and they'll spend nine months undoing their work before they realize that they need to go back to what they started with because it's not, <laughs> there's no joy in their book anymore. Um, I think uh, part of it, I think it's just, me, I, I tend to be a little contrarian. Um, I, I try and keep that quashed down into the dark recesses of my soul, though I, I, I try not to be openly <laughs> confrontational just for the heck of it. Um, and and sometimes when the, I also look at the people who say things like that, and then if I see that you know they're, I guess they don't have the 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 bona fides, which I, th- I think might come from, from me- in medicine, when you get some new piece of, of evidence or information, you, you were taught to check the sources and make sure it's from a credible source and it's reliable information and it's been mm-hmm. peer reviewed or validated. And so when I get advice elsewhere, if it doesn't meet those same, you know, if it doesn't have scientific rigor for a better way to put it, you know, I, I tend yeah. to discount it. So it's like, you know what, well, who are you to say that? You know, if, if someone who's won a Pulitzer prize or something like that says something, that's one thing, but just someone who, you know, you look at what they've done and they've probably violated everything. They just, so it's like you, what you put out is not of a quality that convinces me, you know, what you're talking about. <laughs> Um, it makes it easier to not take their advice too much to heart. So I guess I, I check to see who's giving me the advice before I accept the advice. And if it's someone that has the credibility, the feedback they give is ranked higher than somebody who is just spouting something that ha- and doesn't have anything to back it up. That's fabulous advice for life. <laughs> but, but for writing, it, it, it's excellent advice. Like check who's saying this to you and, and what have they done? And, you know, if, if it's an agent, who are their clients and what are they selling? And if they don't sell books like yours, then maybe that's not the fit. So, you know, what are you doing? Yeah. One person who I won't name, but, you know, their background was as acquisitions editor for a pornographic publisher. I think they call it erotica, but it's porn. It's yeah. like, publish porn, which is fine, but it's not really what I'm writing. So maybe I'm going to go ask somebody else. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, yes. So that actually segues into um, the cozy corner. <laughs> and, uh, no porn on the cozy corner. <laughs> no porn on the cozy corner for oh so many reasons. Um, but are you drawn to cozies and traditionals? Has that always been the draw? Or, you know, can you ever, you know, suspense thrillers? There's so many genres, uh, subgenres within the crime fiction community. But um, cozies and traditionals are a very specific, um, a very specific market or a very specific niche. And you're claiming, you're grabbing it and claiming it. The Cozy Corner is the name of your podcast, which I love that. So, so talk to me about you know, that, how did you decide on this niche and is it, are you there or is it something that you're willing to explore other things? Yeah. Cozy and traditional mysteries, especially traditional mysteries are my favorites. They're the ones that I grew up reading. Uh, They also have the most emphasis on solving a mystery or figuring out a puzzle. And that, that just appeals to me. I mean, it's kind of like medicine, you know, instead of clues, I get symptoms. And instead of a, the name of the murderer, I come up with a diagnosis. So it, it just appeals to me the most. I have read other types of crime fiction, and I don't hate any of it. They're just not my favorites. I also noticed that until recently, I mean, it is changing some now, but cozy mysteries were the most often dismissed as fluff or insignificant or bad writing and if you read i mean there are plenty of you know noir kind of had this renaissance well there's plenty of things that are that calls itself noir or calls itself hard boiled that's crap i mean it just is it's it has nothing to do with the genre it's what you know x book is crap um so it's and i felt like it's not fair to dismiss every cozy as being inferior and by implication, suspense and noir are all fabulous. So, you know, I, I wanted to show people that, hey, you know, there are some good, some well-written, cozy and traditional mysteries, same as there's some mm-hmm. well-written noir and crappy noir and well-written suspense and terrible suspense. So I, I didn't think the genre was being treated fairly. So part of what I'm hoping to do is say, hey, you know, don't just dismiss it out of hand because you think it's not gritty enough or not whatever enough, you know, if judge the book itself when it's writing, but don't just poo poo an entire subgenre uh, just because you've got some preconceived notion about it. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. And I do think that uh, the cozy label does get things dismissed automatically. So let's talk about defining cozy a little bit because, you know, uh, that it can be confusing to folks. Um, traditional, uh, I think that who we hold up as traditional is usually Agatha Christie as the traditional um, golden age, um, mystery author. And you obviously love that puzzle realm too, which was definitely of that period. I mean, they had rules <laughs> about it. They took it seriously. Um, but I like books. I, I prefer books with the puzzle too. I like to be surprised. I think that's part of the, the conceit of the genre. Um, to, to how do you define cozies? But my definition has changed um because i remember when when i was a kid agatha christie was cozy she wasn't traditional yeah because uh, you had yeah. agatha christie and you had you know mickey spillane and raymond chandler um and there wasn't a whole <laughs> lot of choice and and i actually read mickey spillane too so i mean i'm not saying oh no mickey spillane i it was a mystery i read it because i read voraciously as a kid but my original definition of cozy is still sort of the broadest definition in the sort of the broad umbrella they all fall under. There's no explicit sex or violence on the page. Um, it's mm-hmm. it's not gory. There are no steamy love scenes or, or there's no Stephen King in <laughs> a cozy book. The vivid descriptions of dismemberments and whatever um, aren't there. Um, and I, I picked Stephen King because I did also read him. You know, I would read Christine one week and read something about Hercule Poirot the next week. So um, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not dissing Stephen King. It's just, but it is different. As the years sort of went on and books sort of became more and more, I guess, some specialized or, um, you know, cozy, the cozy sort of evolved to be more of a 
always make this joke with someone. Anyway, it's always a, a 29 year old white female who loses her job or leaves her job in the big city and goes to some random small town where she ends up dating the cop who might or might not have been her high school boyfriend. Um, and she <laughs> uh, opens a small business that either circles around craft. Actually, even then they weren't, it wasn't food so much. It was mostly crafts. Um, and I had gone to some writing conference where an agent who was on a panel made a joke that if it didn't have a quilt or a cat, she couldn't sell it as a cozy. Um, and that honestly uh, was somewhat <laughs> legitimately the reason people dismissed cozies because a lot of them did become very very formula i mean they were they were formulaic to the point where they make a hallmark christmas movie seem original i mean they so it it was kind of a dark (laughs) period um that's changing now (laughs) um Mm -hmm. and so now i would say you know a cozy uh, still no explicit sex or violence um with a focus on a community um Mm -hmm with some, they still usually have some quirky characters. Uh, most of them do have a cat or a dog, but that's not as mandatory as it used to be. Uh, they focus on an amateur sleuth and she's usually female. Although I've seen some more cozies written by men with men, amateur sleuths as well. So even, even that's changing. Um, and, and they're the communities that the characters live in are becoming more diverse than they used to be. So the the definition of a cozy 10 years from now is probably not going to be the definition of a cozy now. So it's, it's evolving. It's definitely evolving. And the protagonist, um, is evolving tremendously. I mean, even I would say in the last five years, um, we've seen, uh, diversity in age, in race, in, in gender identity, in, um, in occupation, right? In what they do and, and, you know, how they solve the crimes, which is just adding so much more to the fabric of what a, a cozy uh, or what a mystery is. I mean, this is not just true in the subgenre of cozies, but I'm definitely noticing it there. Do you think, I feel like we're in a golden age right now of, of mysteries and of, of crime fiction um, because of, because of these changes. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's crime fiction is, I think even more popular than uh, it was like I said, five or or 10 years ago. Um, I think cozies have actually become more popular both because um, they are uh, now involving people who, look like a broader range of readers. I mean, it, but part of the reason mm-hmm. I wrote Murder and G Major is because I wanted to see someone who looked like me solve a mystery. And mm-hmm. so if I think we're now embracing that and there's a, a wider variety of things to choose from. So somebody who is not a 29 year old white female can still find somebody in a cozy that looks like them solving a mystery. So I think because it's appealing to a broader range of readers, they're becoming more popular. Um, and uh, honestly, our, I won't use the P word, our recent unpleasantness, <laughs> uh, made people want something to make them feel better. And even though it's yeah. odd that murder makes people feel better, the things that sort of surround that murder with the, the community and the, and the characters, uh, sort of take a little of the edge off of the brutality of it. And, and I think that mm-hmm. also draws people to cozy. It, it's, it's escape fiction is a coping mechanism and it's, it's a legit coping mechanism. So if you just need something to help you forget what a dumpster fire is raging outside, um, cozies are, are one way to help you do that. Yeah. No, I agree. It, 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 order is restored. Yes. <laughs> the bad guys get what they deserve and order is restored. Yeah. Right. And that's not the way the world's working these no. days. So it's like, <laughs> let me read a new series because <laughs> that's going to help. Um, so you've been podcasting since 2019. And and tell me about that. How, how do you enjoy? I, I enjoy having conversations with people. And that's what this is. But are you enjoying, um, you know, doing your podcast it's a lot of work and over the holidays 2020 holidays you really gave yourself a lot of work by saying i'm going from my bi-weekly to like daily inviting everyone i know to come on and talk about their their books which was such a gift to the community but i was just 
flabbergasted at what you put yourself through. Um, so hopefully you enjoy it. But what, you know, tell me about the, that journey, your podcasting journey. Um, I do enjoy it. Um, I know that the holiday thing was one of those. Well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, I didn't. <laughs> I did enjoy it. If I do it again, I will plan further ahead. Um, it, it did yeah. teach me that last minute is not necessarily the way to go. Um, so putting some some more thought and being able to to space interviews out farther. That's another lesson learned. You know, the, the more advanced planning you can do, the easier things are. Um, but yeah, I, I do enjoy interviewing people. I, I got started because uh, Pam Stack, who's the uh, producer of the um, Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, had an opening for a podcast aimed at Cozy Mysteries. Um, and I was a guest on another podcast on the network. And she's like, hey, you write cozies. You want to try hosting a podcast? Uh, my first answer was, no, what are you, nuts? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but I thought about it some more. And I do actually listen to podcasts myself, but they're almost all true crime. Um, yeah. So I, I sort of broadened my scope of listening um, and watched a couple of people re- recording uh, interviews for their shows. I was like, you know what, let me try it. Worst comes to worst, I just put out two episodes and don't ever do it again. Uh, I was afraid to ask people because I thought they were going to say, no, I don't have time for this. What's a podcast? Go away. You're bothering me. Uh, but it turns out people like to talk and they like to talk about what they wrote and and they like to just chat especially now that we you know don't see people in person as much uh, people are you know looking for for outlets to to chat with other people about stuff they're interested in and it's like well people really want to do this and it's fun doing it and so it's uh doing the podcast actually helped get me through 2020 especially um i had actually gone back to school connected to my day job uh, and got a master's in uh, strategic studies and took, well, taken basically two years off of writing. And so the podcast helped me stay connected with the crime fiction community and helped me still feel mm-hmm. involved. So it, it doing it really did help get me through um, these past couple of years, which were just, miserable for everybody. We all wish we could just erase them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, it's a, it's a wonderful podcast and, and, you know, it is a lot of work, but the conversations are, uh, are so great. And I just, I love the niche. So um, the cozy corner every two, you know, every two weeks, unless it's the holidays and (laughs) Alexia doesn't plan on (laughs) doing anything, but record podcasts. So um so when, as part of, you know, when you talked about connecting to the crime fiction community, community is such an important part of publishing. When you started on this journey, did you understand that? You know, I don't, I, I didn't understand how important community was to publishing until I found one. <laughs> no, I, I had no clue. I had no connections, no clue. Um, you know, I sort of bought into that whole image of the solitary writer uh, just doing their thing and then mm-hmm. handing some mysterious agent a completed manuscript. So I, I had no idea. And I was pleasantly surprised to find out that the crime fiction community in particular is so supportive because I have seen, at least you know, through the, the lens of Twitter, which you know I have to keep in mind, what platform I'm looking at, but it does seem like not all writing communities are as supportive as the crime fiction one. Um, I, <laughs> I remember being surprised when I first met some published crime writers as to how really nice they were. Um, and that sadly was not always my experience in medicine. So I, there, there are some truly not nice people in medicine. I hate to say that, but it's true. So my expectations were kind of skewed. And then I felt like, wow, these people who spend all of their time killing people in the pretend world in real life are some of the sweetest, most helpful giving people I've ever met, (laughs) which still to this day awes me. (laughs) I I wonder if it's because people work out their aggressions on the page um, that they're so 
you know, it's a good group to spend time with. Yeah, I, I suspect that that's probably it. It's like, you know, if you can, uh, I admit that some of my fictional murder victims is me working out my anger and annoyance and frustration with, you can't really act out in real life and actually get away with it for long. And so by being able to work out some of that, some of those feelings and disguise it as, as fiction does help. Uh, so then when I, you know, go to a, a conference, whether online or, or virtually, it's, it's much easier to uh, be nice to people and, and want to help them <laughs> uh, because you've kind of gotten out some of the, the, the anger has turned into words. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, I mentioned that you wrote a short story that was in the Bacchacon anthology about a podcast <laughs> episode gone wrong. Do you want to share anything about that? Cause I, I find that an intriguing, I think there's going to be a whole <laughs> glut of zoom meetings gone wrong, <laughs> murder, like locked room murder mysteries coming up. <laughs> Don't you feel like you're sitting in this box and somebody just grabs somebody and you got to figure out where they are and how that happened? Um, do you want to talk a little bit about this or should we just tell people to find the anthology? Well, I can tell you, it was, I was uh, in Newport, Rhode Island at the time. Uh, that was when that was where I was in grad school. And uh, Hank Phillippe Ryan invited me to contribute a story. I admit I was kind of feeling uh, grumpy and sorry for myself. Uh, and I was in, I actually love Newport, Rhode Island and really do want to go back there. It's a, it's a very mysterious place. It's prone to things like fog rolling in and, and ships mm-hmm. in the distance. And uh, it's, it's, you just have to set a mystery there because it's just such a mysterious place. And there's so much history because it dates back to like 16 90 something so hundreds of years of history wrapped in fog how can you not set a mystery there uh right. so between feeling sorry for myself and i would take walks in that fog to uh oddly cheer myself up <laughs> and then i it's so it's, it's it's a combination of me working out some of my crankiness and a sort of a, a love letter to the true crime podcast that i like uh so i i combined uh cranky me with uh, podcast binging and and ended up with a, a story of a podcast that doesn't work out the way anybody thinks it's going to work out. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Do you have any particular true crime podcast you want to sing out the praises of? Yeah, probably my favorite is Small Town Murder because uh, there are two guys. They're actually professional stand-up comedians. It's a comedy podcast and they, they always explain that yes we're comedians yes we're talking about murder uh we we don't make fun of murder victims but sometimes murders especially in small towns are kind of funny which kind of goes along with the cozy genre you know it's yes we're talking about yep. murder uh but we're not making fun of murder victims and you know sometimes murders are, are cozy uh so i guess that i kind of related to them on that level. Um, and, and because they, they do find small town, I forget what their population limit is, but they actually have a population cutoff for how small the town has to be. And they find the, the strangest, most twistiest murder they can and talk about it. Uh, and make, they don't, they don't really make joke. They make commentary. You know, it's not like slapstick stand-up comedy, but the way they deliver their commentary, sometimes it does make you laugh because some of the stuff that goes on is ridiculous. Um, some of the stuff that happens, like, you know, if I actually put that in a fiction book, nobody would, it wouldn't fly, but they're using, I mean, that actually happened in real life. So, um, yeah. so that's, that's, that's probably my favorite. Um, Dateline is probably my second favorite because Keith Morrison does a lot of the episodes and I just like listening to Keith Morrison. <laughs> He has got a huge following. I mean, again, there are podcasts about him. I yes, mean, it's, he's, it's he's the voice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> see. Oh, and uh, one of uh, a true crime obsessed is probably my my other. So those those would be my top three. True crime obsessed. They do. Uh, it's they take like a true crime. Like they'll take like an episode of Dateline and comment on the episode versus you no know, actually doing the 
true crime research themselves. Yeah. But it's funny to hear somebody's take on some true crime documentary. Like uh, they just did one on their Patreon on Lula Rich. And so it was, it was hysterical listening to them talk about Lula Rich, which I had seen. I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. That's the same thing I thought. I thought that, too. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a podcast called Crime Writers On that started to be a podcast about they were uh, commenting on the, the podcast. Uh, oh, my goodness. The original. Uh, I'll remember it, Serial or one of these that, that did it. And But now they do that. They talk about other podcasts or other TV shows. And it's strangely fascinating <laughs> about their take <laughs> on these. And they're all crime writers. So it's like, oh, this is kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. So what are you working on now? Or, or, you know, are you, how's the imagination? Are you got your master's and, you know, moved and you're doing, you know, you're, the Adventures of Alexia on social media. I highly <laughs> recommend it's it's incredibly entertaining. Um, but are you you know working on other short stories? Are you enjoying that genre? Are you working on a new book? I mean, anything? Uh, both. I am my agent. Every so often, um, ask how's a new novel coming. So I, I have to work on it enough to at least be able to to give her her an answer <laughs> to that question. Um, uh, it's it's not part of the Gethsemane Brown series. So I'm working on a non-series novel uh, set mm-hmm. in a small town in South Carolina, uh, sort of loosely based on the area where my uh, mother and uh, her family are from. Uh, not that my mother was involved in any crimes, but it was an interesting place to set a murder. Um, and I'm uh, trying to work on a, a couple of uh, short stories that I had ideas for. Um, it, Short story writing is a totally different type of writing from writing uh, a long form. And my hat is off to people who do it on a regular basis because, you know, I guess, you know, going back to the, the bad advice, people will say, oh, write a short story to practice for a novel. Well, it's not the same. And short stories deserve more respect than that because it's a lot harder than you think to say what you need to say yeah. in a short space. Uh, in a novel, if you have some fluff in there it'd be all fluff but you can have a few extra words uh you can't do that in a short story so it's you really have to choose the right words and there's a very small margin for error so it's it's a whole different art form uh so but i am working on a couple of those and uh i've still got the podcast going um and i'm actually um trying to start research for just because I don't have enough to do right a uh, second podcast true mm-hmm. crimes but historical true crimes from the colonial era I blame that entirely Ooh. on Newport Rhode Island because uh, I was you know all that time yeah. surrounded by c- colonial history is like this is fascinating and I bet the crimes that occurred then are fascinating too so I'm trying to do a yeah. uh, colonial era focused true crime podcast wow that would be fascinating yeah um, I remember reading about it, it was in colonial area. It was Victorian, but a a nurse who worked on Cape Cod, and they realized now she was a serial killer. Oh wow! Because <laughs> I, was, she I almost said, said, "Oh cool, I was like, that's not cool." So, oh, oh wow! No, she had all these patients who died, and then somebody's like. Uh. <laughs> and started to do some testing. It was like, yeah, she was a serial killer. Which you know, you kind of. I mean, I think a lot of. Women serial killers in history didn't get found because they lent, you know, tended to poison people and it got passed off as natural causes. Yeah, and the medical profession is <laughs> is sort of an ideal profession for serial killers because yeah. um you know there's there's a certain percentage of patients or be blunt expected to die and it's easier to disguise what you did <laughs> uh than you know if you just grab somebody off the street. So uh, unfortunately, I think it's a, a field that uh, there are probably some serial killers who don't necessarily uh, ever get detected just because of the type of work. Wow. That's a comforting <laughs> thought. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but true. I mean, yeah, but you know, that's, that's not going to be a cozy series. <laughs> no, actually, um, have you uh, seen this, the either the podcast or the movie based on the podcast, Dr. Death about the, I have not seen an orthopedist or a neurosurgeon, a spine surgeon or spine butcher where he, he 
maimed and killed uh how many patients eight one would have been too many but i mean it was like a a dozen patients and it would just go from hospital to hospital because he'd managed to slip out right under the wire for when the hospital would had to report him and i think the kind of feeling was he was incompetent but if you actually listen to some of the things he did i actually suspect he was a serial killer because some of the things he did a third-year medical student knows better than that and it's like he did some stuff deliberately you know so i i think he was less incompetent than evil um again that's my opinion i'm not involved in this case but he does sound more like a serial killer who people called incompetent it was like you know there's no way he could have even graduated medical school if he was really that much of an idiot which makes me think he wasn't an idiot he was just evil and was doing these things on purpose (laughs) well as you i mean true life comes up with stuff that if you put in a book or in a television show people would not believe it i mean it's it's just it was like darn that was my idea (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're like oh wait that really happened never mind forget i said yeah. that <laughs> and your editor would say yeah this could never happen you can't put this in the book uh, <laughs> alexia thank you so much for being on the podcast and for this fun conversation yes. and uh you know i will put links to the podcast you recommended and your podcast thank you. um in the show notes. Oh, thank you. Thank you for, for having me. Um, I, I enjoy this. It's, uh, I admit I'm not as used to uh, being the guest as I am the host, but this was fun. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.